Good morning. This is Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chose as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is God's word for God's people. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you that we get to come and worship you. We thank you that you've called us uh, back to you after a week of uh, wandering and sin. Um, God, you just have more and more grace for us, and so we're grateful. Uh, we pray that you give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we come to Psalm 33, that it really would help us to worship you more. And as Jared mentioned, for, for all those who come in um, apathetic um, or frantic or sleepy uh, or cold to you, God, would you work in our lives? Would you guard my words and guard our ears that we would hear what you have, us, have for us? I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with the ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. That's the introduction to our psalm this morning, the first three verses. And the psalmist is crying out at the beginning of the psalm to the people of God, praise him, worship him. Sing to God. Tell of His goodness and beauty. Sing His praises. Now I want you to think about this morning um, one question. What is, uh, or what do you most commonly sing the praises of? Okay, so get something in your mind. What, what do you most commonly sing the praises of? Now, obviously I don't mean just literally what do you sing about, but what do you, what do you tell people about? What do you post about? What do you share about? What's the thing that you share the most? 
Or maybe you could think about it from another angle a little bit. Uh, When other people think of you, what is one thing that they associate with you because of how often you talk about it? Uh, Maybe for you, when, when someone thinks of you, they say, man, he loves traveling. Every conversation, he's telling me where he's been, where he wants to go. I'm seeing pictures of it. He's telling me all of his plans. He just, when I think of him, I think traveling. Or she just loves her job. Like every conversation, it's her new projects, her coworkers, her boss. Like it's always about her job. What is it for you that when people think of you, they think, man, this thing, because it's the thing you sing the praises of. Maybe it's your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's a sports team, the Huskers. Maybe it's real estate or investments, cars or TV shows. Something that when people think of you, it's the thing that you most often talk about. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that that the, the culmination of us finding joy in something is when we get to actually share about it. Right? And that makes sense because it, it's a natural thing. When we do something or experience something that we love, what do you want to do? You want to share it. You want to post about it. You want to tell somebody about it. You want to make a phone call. You want to, when you experience something, you want to actually tell people. And Lewis says that's because the, the fullness of joy in something is when you actually get to sing the praises of it. Well, Psalm 33 is going to call the forgiven people of God. So think back to last week, Psalm 32. If your sins are forgiven, Psalm 33 says, if that's true of you, then we should praise Him for it. Our lives should be lives lived in worship and praise of God. Uh, But the reality is for all of us today is that we don't actually praise God as we ought to. It's why we have Psalm 33 commanding us to do it. Because it's something that we don't naturally do. He isn't the thing for most of us that is the primary thing we talk about, think about, share about, post about. And so the purpose of Psalm 33 is to help us change that. It's to help us actually praise God. The Lord. And what he's going to do is highlight different characteristics of who God is. And then he's going to say, So we should praise God. We should praise God for who he is. Now, one of the reasons I love that, and this is going to be a little bit of an aside, but one of the reasons I love how this psalmist does that is because I think it's really common today for people to say, um, we, don't, we don't really need theology and we don't need doctrine. We just need to love God. We need to worship Him, and we just need to to love Him and be in relationship with Him. So we don't really need some of that other stuff. And some people love the Psalms, because we'll say, well, the Psalms aren't about theology and doctrine. It's just about emotions and love in this relationship with God. But the psalmist, I think, would emphatically deny that, because he's going to say, we need to worship God, and how does he get us to do that? He points us to four doctrinal truths of who God is and says, so we should worship God. And I think that the the problem that we have today, the reason that we don't worship God like we ought to, is not because we know too much about God. It's not that we are so filled with the knowledge of God that we're bored by Him. I think we don't praise God like we should because we hardly know Him at all. And so the psalmist is going to come and he's going to say, hey, we as the people of God need to praise God. We should worship him. We should have a passion for him. How does he get us to do that? 
Well, let me just teach you about who he is, all right? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Psalm 33, it's going to shine this bright light on four different aspects of who God is, four characteristics of God, and each one we're going to say, hey, let's praise him for that. So here's kind of our outline for this morning. We've got four points. If you're a note taker, you can get these down. We're going to say, praise the Lord for he is creator. Praise the Lord for he is sovereign Praise the Lord, for He is judge, and praise the Lord, for He is Savior. All right, so we'll take those one at a time as we work through the psalm. So first, if you've got a Bible, go Psalm 33. Uh, We'll have the verses up on the screen as we go through it, but Psalm 33, let's look at the first one, praise the Lord, for He is Creator. Look at verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The psalmist begins by saying that we praise God for his work of creation by the power of his word. Now, uh, part of my aim in this message, kind of what I want to do, is help give us a God-centered worldview. All right, which means when we look at the world and we look at our lives and we look at everything going on, that God would actually be at the center of that. And I think that's important because um, I think we need to be aware that everything in our culture right now uh, is presupposing a secular worldview. Okay, so, so what I mean by that is there's this like underlying belief and assumption of a secular worldview in all the messages we hear. And that idea of secular, I, what I mean is just um, that there's no supernatural, right? So no like God or, or ultimate being, uh, that what we see is, is the ultimate reality, that the natural way of things, the natural order is all the world will ever be. This kind of secular mindset is getting pressed on us in, in everything. The messages we hear, the news we read, the TV shows we watch, like everything. It, it's like waves beating against a shoreline and it's slowly chiseling away. And if we're not careful as a church, we will start to just assume some of those things as well. But the psalmist has a completely different worldview. Their worldview is utterly God-centered, and here it says it's not just that God's the center of our world today, but God is actually the creator of everything. Uh, Look at the power of God displayed in these verses. Uh, It says that the Lord speaks, He breathes, it says, and the world as we know it is formed. He, He speaks, and the vast heavens are created. He utters a breath, and the galaxies are thrown into place. With the slightest movement, mountains are formed. The seas, the oceans are bound to their place. And have you ever thought about this? God did not labor one bit in creation. Like think about his power, that he created everything that we know and everything that we see, and he did not labor one bit over it. Verse 9 says, he simply spoke, 
and things came to be. He speaks and mountains rise. Stars are birthed, animals are formed, planets line up in their place, and humankind exists. This is the power of God in His Word. So, this means then, if God is the creator of all things, including us, then we should praise Him with all our lives. Like everything about us should live to praise God. And I say that because no good created thing exists solely for itself. Right? No created thing exists for its own glory, but it exists to give glory back to its creator. Does that make sense? Uh, and this is pretty common like in, in most areas of life. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, if you think about uh, a piece of art, right? So if you look at a piece of art, or, you know, we've got these graphics that people in our church are painting every week in our psalm series. And we look at that, and we see its beauty. Nobody's looking at that and thinks, man, my mind is blown that this just popped up out of nowhere, right? No one's looking at that beautiful piece of art and think, man, that canvas just really put these colors together. No, we look at the art and we say, the artist is talented, right? We see its beauty and we think the artist is gifted. Uh, you, You could think about songs that you love, Right? Part of our praise for a song doesn't just end in the song itself, but it goes to the person who wrote it or composed it. When we love a song, we're appreciating the work of its creator. Uh, when we look at a light bulb, it shows the genius of Thomas Edison. The plane shows the innovation and the brilliance and the bravery of the Wright brothers. Right? When you see something created, it shows something about its creator. Created things give praise back to the Creator. So church, what would that mean then for us? If we actually believed that God created us, I think that means then that our lives do not exist ultimately for us. Like, think about that. What if we, and, and I'm, I'm saying this as nobody functionally believes this. Nobody functionally believes that my life doesn't exist for me. But think about, if we are created beings for God, then our lives don't actually exist for you. The ultimate purpose of your life isn't about you. It's actually about giving praise back to your creator. That's why you exist. The Lord created you so that you could give praise and glory back to him. And anything less than that is simply rebellion. As created beings, our lives exist to give praise to our Creator. And my hope is that we can slowly as a church kind of move back to that, that we can give up kind of a a self-centered worldview where honestly most of us function as if our lives exist for us and then we could see the power of God in creation and Him creating all things including us and live our lives giving praise to Him. Now, I know that's fairly vague, so let me make this a little bit practical. Let me just give you a couple ideas on how to do this, all right? So uh, think about this. When you you walk out of the building this afternoon, okay, you leave the tack, you go out from under that awning, and you feel the sun, and it beats down on your face, and you feel the warmth of it, and you see beautiful things all around you. You see flowers and grass and all of this stuff. Instead of just saying, man, it is a beautiful day out here. What if we said, 
Praise God for creating the sun. Praise God for the flowers, the colors that he gave us. Praise God for the smells that he gave us. Or when you go to lunch and you, you know, are eating your sandwich or your salad or your canes or whatever you've got and you're sitting there and you eat and you think, man, this is so good. Instead of thinking, I love this restaurant, what if you said, praise God for this food that he has provided that tastes good, that he's given us to enjoy? Or when you go to work this week and you get a project handed to you and it just stumps you and you're not sure how to figure it out and so you're wrestling with it and you spend hours trying to figure out this project and all of a sudden you hit a breakthrough. You come up with a creative idea, you get it, your boss applauds you. Instead of just saying kind of like, like, well done to me, what if we said, and praise God that he created my brain He gave me creativity and imagination. Like, I was able to do this because of what the Lord has done. What if every aspect of our life, we actually saw the Lord as the creator and giver of life, and we praise him for it? This is what the psalmist is calling us to. That's number one. Number two, he goes on to say, praise the Lord, for he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Now, if you studied uh, theology at all, or maybe you've just been in the church for a while, uh, you might know that this issue of God's sovereignty is, uh, it can be hotly debated. Okay, so if that's a new word for you, the idea of sovereignty, uh, it just means God's control or his authority over the world. All right, so you could even think of uh, like a king or a queen in another country. Um, they have sovereignty over their land. You could even call them sovereign. Right, Because they have sovereignty over the people or their land. Well, that's what God's sovereignty means. And John Frame, who's a, he's a contemporary theologian, he says that the idea of God's sovereignty is actually just a logical next step after the doctrine of God being creator. Right? So think about this. He said, if God created everything, well then who has the right to rule over this creation? Well, God does, right? Whoever creates the thing has authority over the thing. And so when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're simply saying God created everything and now has authority and control over it. Yet, I do know that for many, the idea of God's sovereignty is not a comforting idea, but it's a challenging idea for us to get our minds around. Uh, And before I show us this in the verse, let me just say, uh, this is why I think maybe we bristle so hard at the idea of God's sovereignty. I think that we hate the idea of not being the center of our world and not being in control of our world, right? Like we hate that idea. And I think that's common for people everywhere. I mean, I just think people, we hate that idea of of people having complete control over us. But I think especially in our context, right? I mean, just think about how was our country founded? It was founded on the premise that we don't want an authoritative king. What do we want? We want representation. We want a voice. We want freedom from control. And I'm not saying that's, that's all bad in a worldly political sense, But when that underlying value translates into how you view God, then I think we have problems. And I think that's why we bristle at this idea. When we say God is sovereign and in control of everything, why that might be challenging for us is because it's really hard for us to find comfort in knowing someone else is in 
complete control. But my hope this morning is not that I'm going to fully convince you of that, but maybe that we could just move a couple ticks in that direction. I think that's what we're going to see here. So uh, that's a long intro to basically say, look at verses 10 through 12, as we see God's sovereignty. 33, 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So in verse 10, it's talking about the, the council of the nations. That means the, the plans or the strategies and the desires of the nations. And while he, he's talking about like different people groups, he's also, it's kind of the idea of like the powerful people that are creating plans and strategies. So you could think presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, influential organizational leaders in our world today. People that have real power in the world. And he's saying that even though they have counsel or strategies for how the world goes, it is nothing compared to the power and authority of the Lord. And I think a really good example of that actually is just looking at this last year. Right? So think about uh, just this year we just faced with the COVID-19 pandemic. So think of all the powerful politicians and leaders in our world, the people that really can change things and move things in our world. Think about all their plans and strategies last January. Right? Like they had plans and things that they wanted to do, and just within a couple months, everything was different. I mean, nothing was the same. Nothing happened as people thought it would. The most powerful people in our world who can shape things had everything tossed in what seemed like a moment. And then when politicians and scientists and people tried to help stop the spread of this thing, what did we see? Not their power, but their powerlessness over this. We saw human powerlessness on display. But church, this is not the case with God. Uh, just using this example, uh, the COVID-19 virus did not begin and it did not transfer from one person to the next, not one time, without the Lord allowing it to happen. People, we reveal our powerlessness in these moments. The Lord, it is not the same. He has power over all things. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 7, the Lord is speaking. He says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He, he's telling his people that anything that happens is under his rule and reign because he is sovereign. Isaiah 46 goes on to say that the Lord accomplishes everything he wants to. So while the nations can create plans and they can get thrown off, it says when the Lord wants to do something, it's done. Job 42 says, who can thwart the plans of the Lord? Nobody. Nobody. This is God's sovereignty. Now, I do recognize that at this point, uh, that still doesn't make God's sovereignty uh, maybe comforting, right? Maybe you can get there and say, okay, God created everything. He's sovereign over everything. But that's still not comforting because we still suffer. We still have pandemics. We have all sorts of hardships. So how does God's sovereignty match with the suffering in the world? 
Well, I think we need to attach uh, God's sovereignty to another doctrine that's very similar uh, in God's providence. Okay, so while sovereignty says that he has the right and authority over all things, God's providence says that he uses that in wise and good ways. And that's why we named our church Providence, because we want to be a people that believe that God is intentionally working in all things in the world for his good. And that means, yes, even suffering and hardships in life. Even the hardest moments in our life, the Lord promises to turn all things to good for those who love him. His providential hand does not get removed when hardships happen, but he works in the midst of those moments. So if you look around in your own life and you see suffering or illness, death and pain, hardship, loss of job, and you wonder, is God gone? Is this meaningless? Is there any hope for this? The idea of God's sovereignty and providence means that He is in it and He will work it for good. He doesn't promise ease in life, but He promises that He is in it and He will prevail. Uh, You know, this, this language in Psalm 33, it's actually really similar to Psalm 2 which I know uh, you guys probably all remember when we preached on Psalm 2 four years ago, because I'm sure you remember every sermon. But if you don't, uh, Psalm 2 basically says, look, all the nations, they wage war on God. Cultures will wage war. They'll rage against Him. And so when we look around as Christians and we think, man, there's not only illness and suffering in my life, but I look at culture, I look at politics, I look at everything, and it feels like it's all going in the wrong direction. Psalm 2 says... Yep, and that's okay, because that's the way the world will work. And Psalm 33 says, but the Lord will prevail. His sovereignty will prevail over any forces or power in this world. So this should bring us great comfort as Christians to know whether in our own life or in our culture or city, that even when things look hard or things look like they're going in the wrong direction, the Lord promises he is in it and he will prevail. The Lord is sovereign. All right, number three. Uh, If God's sovereignty isn't controversial enough, uh, the next aspect that the Lord or that the psalmist addresses is saying, Praise the Lord, for he is judge. Now, I know this may sound strange to some of us again, but a people that praise the Lord often will praise the Lord that he is a righteous judge who sees all things. And I know that that's uh, potentially hard for some of us. And I know that for a lot of us, we, we like to view God as soft and tender and compassionate and gracious, and he is those things. But here the psalmist says we should not only praise God because he's creator and sovereign, but we should praise him for he will sit as judge one day over all things and that he sees all things. Uh, In fact, as as we read through these verses, I want you to notice the word all, which appears four times in just three verses, all right? And that's giving emphasis to the scope of what God sees and what he will judge. So uh, look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all 
and observes all their deeds. So the imagery here is the Lord uh, sitting in heaven, looking down on the earth. And, and as it does that, it's, it's not giving us just like a, a geographical location, but it's trying to communicate a position of power. So if we keep with our judge theme, think um, like if you think of a courtroom, right? Who has the highest seat in the courtroom? The judge, right? Because the judge, it symbolizes a position of authority and power. Well, that's the type of dynamic that the psalmist is getting at here. He's drawing out this idea that, that the Lord is sitting above the earth. He's sitting in the heavens and he sees all that he has created. He looks at all the inhabitants, all the things in the world, all the people in the world. And in verse 15, it says he doesn't just see the things we do in public, but he knows the motives of our hearts and sees every deed that is done both in public and in private. Which means there is nothing that happens in our hearts our minds, or behind closed doors that is cut off to the sight of God. Now, I want to make two quick kind of points on this, or speak maybe into two different types of people. The first one, um, I think what this psalm means for some of us, if you're here and you feel like the Lord has not seen you, and maybe there's, there's good and bad elements to this. So maybe uh, you feel like you have tried to be faithful to the Lord. You have tried to live in integrity behind closed doors. Uh, you've tried to do acts of service, but nobody sees it. You never get recognition. You're always overlooked. Nobody sees the faithfulness that you're trying to live out. Psalm 33 wants to remind you, the Lord sees. There's no little good deed that's uh, done that maybe nobody else sees that is unseen by the Lord. He sees it all, and he is pleased with every little faithful act that we commit. On the other side of that, uh, maybe if something horrible has been done to you in private, maybe something's been said or done in secret, and it's never actually come to light, and you've wondered, has God actually seen it? Is he letting injustice reign because this thing has not actually come to light? Psalm 33 would say, he has seen it and he will sit as judge over it. There is no evil deed, act, or word that is said behind closed doors or in the dark that God will not bring to light. And he may do that in this life, but he for sure will do that on judgment day when he brings everything to be judged against him. So if you feel like the Lord has not seen you, Psalm 33 wants you to know that the Lord has seen you and the Lord is a righteous judge. And whether that's good deeds or bad deeds, he will sit as judge over them. Now secondly, for a second group of people, this one's maybe a bit of a warning to some. Um, if you've maybe lived for a while or maybe your whole life thinking that you can kind of have a, a double life to some extent where publicly you uh, appear like a Christian. You appear like you're following God or you're doing good things because you come to church or you, you know, post the right things or when you're with your friends you talk about things that look good and so you kind of feel good about your identity or you being a Christian because publicly it looks that way or you have people convinced of that. 
Yet you know that your heart is not there or behind closed doors. That is not the way you live. You need to know that the Lord is not fooled. The Lord's not fooled by public personas and masks. You could have me convinced. You could have other people in your city group or even your spouse convinced that you're all in. You love the Lord. You will not fool the Lord. Where your heart is at and the things that you do in private are just as seen to the Lord. He knows it and he sees it. And therefore, Psalm 33 needs to remind people that if if you've attempted to live a fake life or you've tried to just be good enough for God on the outside, that God sees and that he will judge not only your public persona, but the secrets and the heart motives that you face. In fact, so, uh, Hebrews 9.27 says that all of us, when the Lord sees everything about us, one day when we die, we will actually face Him as judge, and He will judge all of our deeds. The Lord is judge. And this leads us to our final aspect of who the Lord is. We praise the Lord, for He is Savior. Because here's the reality at this point. If we are honest about saying, my heart motives have not always been pure, my thoughts have not been pure, I have lived a sinful life, then so far where the psalmist has taken us is we should have praised the Lord because he was created. We should give him everything in our life, which we haven't done. We should always trust him as being sovereign and providential in our life, which we haven't always done. He is the judge who now we will face for our sinful acts and deeds. And and for sinners, that doesn't mean good news. That actually means bad news. Because our sins don't give us life with God. They give us death, as the psalm will go on to say. It'll give us separation from God. So the question we as a people need to face is, well, how do we actually become right with this God? How do we stand before God and have any hope with Him on that day when He's our judge well, this is where the psalmist goes next. So if you got your Bible, uh, look at verses 16 and 17. He's trying to answer the question of, okay, how are we saved then? And first he's going to address how we're not saved. Okay, look at 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by, it great, uh, by its great might it cannot rescue So he's starting by saying, look, these are the things that will not work to save you before a righteous judge. And and the three images are similar, but they're a little bit different, but they're conveying the same point here. Uh, What he's trying to say is, look, uh, a king, the most powerful in our world, with armies and money and influence, is never going to have enough to save himself. Nobody can actually have enough power and influence to save himself before the Lord one day. A warrior with his great inner strength and determination and desire for good is never going to have enough inside of him to actually save himself. A war horse, which is like a, a, a military advancement, says that, that can bring hope for a while but will never actually overpower the Lord. No amount of advancement, power, or knowledge, or pedigree that you have will overpower your own unrighteousness. The psalmist is saying there's nothing in you that can save you. No goodness, power, influence, money, control, knowledge, or pedigree is actually deep inside of you enough to come out and 
save you. And my guess is there's probably some in the room today that have been operating or banking on something in you to save you. That there's some sort of influence, some sort of spiritual strength, some sort of knowledge, some sort of behavior that can save you before the Lord one day. Psalm 33 says these are idols, false hopes. So if none of those things can, who can save you? Who can save us from our sin? Well, look at verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who what? Who, who, are, who are spiritually strong, who do good things, who praise the Lord. No, those who simply fear Him. On those who hope in His steadfast love. That He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Uh, this may sound strange, but the only thing that can save you from the wrath of the Lord as your judge is the grace of the Lord as your Savior. It's the only thing. And I know that seems strange. It seems like a paradox. The only one that can save you from God is God, right? Like it, this paradox where God is a wrathful judge that you will face one day, and God being a gracious Savior actually meets in the person of Jesus Christ. This is all pointing us towards the work of Jesus, that when we have to stand before the judge one day, you cannot stand on anything that is within yourself, any goodness that you can conjure up in yourself. You stand before the Lord as judge with the Lord as your Savior. Jesus came to not only be the judge of the world, but to actually save his people in the world. He is the one where we stand righteously before the judge. When, when you face the judge on that day, you face him with Jesus standing in between you as your righteousness and perfection and holiness. The way that you are saved from the wrath of the Lord is by the grace of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the call for us today is not to try to use your goodness or personal piety to get to God, but it is to throw our dead souls on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because it is in that, as the psalm says, that he delivers us out of death. And friends, if that has happened for you, if our sins have been forgiven, what should we do? We praise him. Right? It's the only natural response for a God who is creator, sovereign, judge, and savior is we praise him. We actually sing his praises as the people who have been redeemed. Uh, let me close with this. You know, uh, many scholars will say that Psalm 33, it's actually like a, a sequel to Psalm 32. Right? It's intentionally placed here. It's one of the reasons why we're preaching psalm after psalm after psalm, because this is intentional. Uh, and James Johnston, he describes the connection of these two psalms this way. He says, Psalm 32 describes the blessing of forgiveness. Psalm 33 follows as a song of joy. So in many ways, Psalm 33 is the song of the forgiven. It's a song of praise for those whose sin God does not count against them. It is a song for you today if you are a Christian. Church, we praise God because He is our Creator. It's why we exist. We praise God because He's sovereign in all aspects of life. We can rest in His sovereignty. We praise God for He is the judge who sees everything and will judge all things. And we praise God because He is our Savior. He has given us grace 
and mercy. And church, when I say we praise Him for those things, I legitimately mean, can we as a church actually praise Him? Like have a passion in our souls because God has saved us. So we'd praise Him for who He is. So when we sing songs here on Sunday morning, can we be done with just, you know, standing and kind of reading words? Can we sing and can we praise Him? Like take Psalm 33 literally and sing joyfully and loudly. When you live throughout this week and you go from person to person and thing to thing, could he be the thing that we most frequently want to talk about, that we've got to tell people about, that he has done such a work in my life that I am so passionate about who he is that I have to share him, that we would see people in our world, our families, our friends, our co-workers that are going to face the Lord as judge and stand condemned if they do not hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would he be the thing we are most passionate about? And will we praise him? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are and for what you've done. God, we thank you that you are our creator. Uh, we pray that our lives would live to, um, to praise you, that we would exist for you and your glory. God, we praise you that you are sovereign in all things, that, uh, God, if there's people that are going through challenging moments, some confusing moments, some hard moments, that they would know that you have not left them, but that you are with them and you are working all things for good, that you will bring all things to light. God, you're the judge who sees all things, and God, you are our Savior. We have no hope apart from you. So God, would you help us to remember this, and would you build a passion in us, a zeal for your glory, that we would want to praise you and sing about you and talk about you more than anything else in the world. Would you mark our church by that? God, we need you to do this. Spirit, would you move in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and